Thank you, Brother Jamie. Thank you for sharing the update and the word there. Take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter number 9. And we are very thankful for partners in ministry that are doing the work of God in different locations, and we can do it. And uh, we think of our missionaries all around the world today doing the work of the gospel in their location and rejoice that the gospel is not bound. Amen? The word of God is not bound. It keeps marching forward. We're going to be in Mark 9, and then in a moment or two, I'm going to ask you to turn with me, and we're going to reference an Old Testament story, and then we'll revisit that story at the end of the message. Um, But we'll read Mark 9, and we'll read verses 33 through 41 first. Um, Last week, we took a pause, and we looked at Father's Day and just talked about to our dads last Sunday. This Sunday, we're going to resume our series uh, on the subject of the Messiah, uh, the work of the Messiah. And we, we did, last year, we did a series on who is Jesus. And we walked through the question, who is Jesus? And we culminated with the Apostle Peter's statement, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then very quickly, the question arises, so what is the work of the Messiah? Because they very quickly reject the idea in the very same text that somehow or another the Messiah would be a suffering servant and not simply a ruling king. And they were right to say that he will be the king of kings and he will be a ruling king, but first he came to be a suffering servant. He came to be the lamb that was slain. He became to be the sacrifice for our sins. And the, the, the apostles are rejecting this idea. They don't want to hear it. Jesus has taken them up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the beginning of this chapter, and they saw, three of them saw him revealed in his glory. And then they come down off the mountain and they can't do these miraculous works anymore. And Jesus says, this comes not but by prayer and fasting. And then Jesus takes them out of the city and immediately tells them, he said, hey, the son of man is going to suffer. He is going to be killed and he will rise again on the third day. And very quickly, the Bible tells us in our text that they did not understand this and they were afraid to ask him. And they, they just didn't want to know the answer to it. How many of us, we've, we just, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to know the answer to that. I don't want to ask that question. And they didn't want to wrestle with the answer to it. And I think one of the biggest struggles of the reason why they didn't want to see Jesus as a suffering servant is because if the Lord was to be the suffering servant, what would that mean for those who follow him? And they did not want to be suffering servants. And so therefore, they didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus would be a suffering servant. And then we follow them into our text today, where now they're wrestling with who is the greatest among them. And so that's where we'll pick up our reading this morning. If you found your place in Mark 9 and verse 33, let's stand to our feet in honor of the word of God. And we'll read verses 33 through 41. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, 
Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would do a, uh, a work in our hearts this morning. Or may our hearts and minds be stirred, may they be uh, provoked, may we be convicted, or may we be changed, or may we leave looking more like the servant, our Lord, than when we came. And we'll praise you for your mercy and your truth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As you'll be seated there, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, and uh, the account here is an account that we would all be familiar with, and it's the Tower of Babel. And if you remember the, the timeline of things falling out, the flood has come, and now the descendants of Noah have gone through a population explosion. They are still somewhat banded together here and migrating as a nomad group of people place to place, and they come to this one plain here, and they are settled in this plain and as they come to the plain, the land of Shinar, they dwelt there. In verse number three, and they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And listen to these next words, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And of course, we know that God confounds the language there, scatters them across the face of the earth. And of course, these different people groups go all over the, the earth, and we have the different regions because of that. And yet, here, what were they trying to do? They were about to make a name for themselves. They were seeking to build a name. Now, let me say this, God has seen fit to exalt the name of some, and if you were to read down in chapter number 12, he even promises Abraham that as he follows him, he said, I will make your name great. He said, I will exalt your name. But let me make something very clear, our name being exalted is God's business, not our business. And we are not ever to exalt our name, but we're to exalt the name of God. We're to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and let him care for our name. And why does man so consumed with how will be remembered? What will be thought of me when I'm gone? And so often we have our minds consumed with this, and I think the apostles too were wrestling with this. And what was the deal? They were afraid, and I read this phrase in a book this week, and it just stuck out to me. They were afraid, or they lived with the fear of insignificance. They just didn't want to be insignificant. 
And I think that fear of insignificance can grip us all at times, that am I doing enough? Am I in my right place? What, what do I need to promote myself? Do I need to get a better social media presence? How can I do this to promote me? And all of our world so often is so focused on self-promotion. And Jesus is going to teach the disciples the contrast of this and what the biblical role of this promotion should look like. So let's go back to Mark 9. As we begin our thoughts this morning, the climate of the apostles' day was a climate of great pride and struggle. The Romans had come in, and they were in their authority and their power were oppressing the people of Israel, and in doing so, the nation of Israel was doing what they could to promote self through the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, and it was power over. It was always a top-down power over structure that was taking place. If you wanted a position, you better carve out a position for you. Uh, We might say in our modern vernacular, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And you've got to climb to the top. You've got to do what you've got to do to make it happen. And this is the kind of climate these men were in. And they were looking at the oppression of the Romans, the misuse of the law by the Pharisees. And now they had an inroad with this guy, Jesus, who could walk on water, who could raise the dead. And now, man, we're going to hitch our wagon to this star because he's going somewhere. Well, indeed he is. He's going to a cross. And they couldn't reconcile in their mind where he was going with all of this power, with all of this authority, that even the demons were subject to him. He's talking about being crucified. That doesn't make sense. But they had a sense in which this this is what it must be. And Edersheim, in his book, he describes the climate of the day. He said one rabbi had gotten so well-versed, this is the apocryphal story they wrote about this rabbi, He was so versed in the Jewish uh, law, and it's the extra-biblical law that they had written rules about the Bible and other rules. They had some 70 chapters just on how to wash your hands. And all of these rules they would have debates about, and there would be wrestling, and this man had become such an authority on these extra-biblical rules that it is said in their legend that God and the council of heaven was having a discussion on these very rules. And so because they couldn't come to a conclusion, God couldn't come to a conclusion on this, they summoned that rabbi from earth to come and settle the debate. Wow, he must be somebody. He's going to set God straight on something. But this is the kind of thinking they had about their rabbis, that they were so authoritarian, they were so right. And this is where the Jews find themselves, or the, the apostles find themselves. The kingdom is near. Now I want to break the text up into four sections. First off, I want to give you the argument the paradox, the illustrations that he uses, and then the motive. And we'll look at those four together this morning. So first off, the argument. If you would uh, look in again in our, our text in verse number 33, and he came to Capernaum and being in the house, he asked them what it was they disputed among themselves by the way. And what was the question? Who will be the greatest among us? What sparks this? Maybe it was the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe it was the fact that they failed at uh, uh, casting out the demon just recently. And there's this wrestling going back and forth. But who will be the greatest? You know, it is interesting to me that they had had their greatest failure in ministry so far in this very chapter. And yet they're still talking about who's going to be the greatest and who will be the most preeminent. They didn't want to answer the Lord's questions. 
um, you know, when he asked them, he comes in, he said, hey, guys, what have you, what, what you been talking about? And immediately they're like, uh, nothing, nothing. Kind of like when you walk in the room and your kids are doing something, you know something's going on, and you're like, what you guys doing? Nothing, nothing. And they don't answer. They don't want to respond because they know, let me say this, when we find ourselves in the midst of petty arguments, let me just encourage you to pray about your argument because in the midst of our pettiness, when we begin to pray about it and we take it before the God of the earth, it reveals how petty we are. And it shows the pettiness of it. Verse number 35, the Bible says that Jesus sat down. This would have been the normal posture of a rabbi who was teaching. He would have gathered the apostles around him and he would have taken a seat in their midst and he would begin to teach them. And we see a very, uh, just a, if I could, not a, not a heavy-handed correction of the apostles, but a, a loving and careful instruction of these men as he's bringing them along. And what is the paradox that he gives? So we see, first off, the question, and now we see the paradox if any man desire to be first. If any man desires to be first, notice again, Jesus is being very gracious here. He's not walking in and laying the law down on them, but he's going to, he's going to give them some instruction. You know, and, and, and it's a very almost, um, okay, I'm not going uh, to say, guys, why are you arguing about this? I'm just going to say, hmm, well, if any of you happen to be talking about who's first, because remind you, they didn't answer him. And so he says, if you happen to be talking about who would be first among you, I got some instruction for you. You know, and, and I, I think the Lord, in his graciousness, he could have responded by saying something like, you know what, you scoundrels? You're posturing for position and power, and, and I'm talking about going to a cross, and all you can think about is who's going to sit on my right hand and my left hand. I'm just going to chuck the whole lot of you and find somebody else. But really, who's he going to get, me or you? Because we'd be in the same mess in our posturing. So he does not respond harshly with them. You see, and here's the thing. Men have always desired to be first. Self-promotion is woven into our DNA or our fallen nature. Is very. I mean, is it not the original sin? God had given man dominion over a garden. He had given man position and authority. He had given him a, as a man under authority to have authority over the creation that he had placed him in. And yet the moment he hears there's a job opening, he wants to be God. And Satan comes down and says, hey, you can be his God. Oh, sign me up for that. Put my name in. I'd like to be God. Because we're never content with what God has given us. We always want something more. And self-promotion has always been a part of it. Cain and Abel wrestled to who would be the greater, and Cain strikes Abel down in murder. Lot looks at the plains of Sodom and says, you know what, I don't care what Abraham needs. I'm going to take the well-watered plains, and he seeks self-promotion. Jacob and Esau in their battles, the 11 brothers and Joseph and their con contention constantly. Saul and his contention with David. And you and I, with the contentions we've had with our brothers and sisters and family members, and even brothers and sisters in Christ, when we have struggled to be first, to be the one who has the better story, and we're always one-upping, and that, that drive to do this lives within our sin nature. And so what is the paradox? Jesus looks at them in verse number 35, and he says, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Last of all. 
This is the idea that no work or position is beneath us. It is a condescension of Christ that we see as the example of this. Is that Christ came down, the God of glory, humbled himself and walked as a man. And he's calling us to humble ourselves to any level that he calls us to and say there's nothing beneath me. I, I hear statements like, well, I, that's just beneath me. I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't work for that little bit of money. I wouldn't accomplish that. Here's the reality of it. We, we ought not to, as believers, have a mentality that says, there's something I wouldn't do for the glory of God. But he that would be first, let him be last. Last of all. And the idea here is not to be last of all in order that I might be first. It is not a means to an end. Because here's the thing. If you think somehow or another by your servanthood, and you put your servanthood on display, that then you'll become great, you're missing it. Because in our servanthood, there is greatness. It is being like our Lord to be the servant of all. Because that's what we're pursuing. And then he says, servant of all. This is, there is no person beneath us that we would not reach out to. This is not the path to greatness. This is what greatness looks like. This is what it means to be the first of all. And it is modeled for us by Christ as he lays down his life. The God of heaven is crucified by human hands. The God of heaven descends to where we live. You understand God put his feet in the dirt of this earth and he walked in the steps that we would walk and he took on our sins for us. And Jesus understood that this would not sink in and so he says, let me give you a few illustrations. Let me drive this home for you. And so now the illustrations come to view. He said, I, I want you to have a spirit of servanthood. I want you to understand that I came to serve, not to be served. And he said, so how far are you to take this? So then he grabs a child, or he calls this child to him in verse 36. He said, and he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, and I love the wording here, the taking him in his arms, uh, we word study tells us that this literally means he picked him up and squeezed him. He, he folded him into his arms. And often we'll take a little one or somebody like that, and maybe moms or dads, you'll grab that little one to you and pull them to your chest and hold them. And Jesus, demonstrating his love and his compassion, folds this little one into his arms and holds him there. And then he says to the men, and he said to them, whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever receive me receiveth not me but him that sent me. And he said, when you receive the least of these, you're receiving me. When you receive me, you receive the Father. Now, I think we can miss the point here if all we do is see a cute little child dressed up for Sunday best and coming into church and think that is all that's being discussed here. Well, I like kids, so I'm off the hook. That's not what he's driving at. Understanding that in that day and time and in the, the Greco-Roman culture, children were not exalted to a place of honor. There was no promotion for them at all. A child was the least significant person in Jewish and Greco-Roman culture at this time. By using a child as his object lesson, Jesus was saying that service involves caring about people, even insignificant people such as children. The Aramaic word for child and servant are synonymous. And the idea here is that he's looking at the least of one, the ones that had no political power to promote them, the one that had no financial gain to give them, and he's saying, reach down to the least of these. 
You know, I, I think in our society today, we can be thankful that the gospel has taken children and elevated them. We spend billions of dollars a year for our children. If you want to raise money for something, just say you're doing it for children. You can raise a lot of money in the name of children. And that's not a bad thing. It does show the fact that we as humanity cannot take correction without perverting the correction. Because we take children from a place where they were obscure and insignificant, and now we've gone to the other extreme where now we've put them on idols and made idols out of them. And now parents no longer tell children what to do. Children tell parents what to do. And we have definitely swung past it. So what is Jesus driving to us? Who are the insignificant? Who are those who cannot benefit you that you should be laboring to? And he's not saying that those are the only people we should minister to. He's not saying that if somebody could take you to dinner, don't ever minister to them. That's not what he's driving at. He's saying to them, how about we understand that ministry doesn't just go to those who can do something for us, but it should go all the way to those who cannot do anything for us. And we ought to reach to the insignificant. And as I think about the insignificant in our nation today, I think of the countless fatherless children and motherless children that are in our community here today that do not have somebody to teach them the way of life and could not walk with them. You know, the, one of the greatest travesties in our country is fathers being absent. And what an opportunity for the church to step in to our neighborhoods around us and even our neighbors on the streets next to us. And, and even if they're not necessarily fatherless, some are uh, virtually fatherless because there's no influence. There's no godly direction. And what an opportunity to have a ministry. And I, I think not only of that, then I think of the place of ministry is maybe somebody who's not like you that you have opportunity to minister to. This is not only a willingness, or not only place we minister, but a willingness to minister to anyone. Is there anyone beneath that you would say, I'm not going to minister to that person? And if you have that heart, you have a wrong heart. And a heart that must be surrendered to the Lord is saying, Lord, show me who you would have me minister to. Now let me say this, if we have all of our theology in right order and we build castles of theology and we comfort ourselves with our high morals and we pat each other on the back for how well we're doing at keeping everything right, but we never reach out to those who can do nothing for us, we're missing the gospel. We have a, we have a responsibility to take our efforts and our energy and our labor and saying, God, who in this community around us needs our ministry that we could reach out to? And, it, you know, here's the thing. It may take a little bit more effort when you consider that not everybody here is going to be impressed by a soup kitchen. Amen. It may take a little more thought to look, how can we minister? It may take us getting out of our normal path that we walk every day and understanding that there are people struggling with depression and people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts and moms and dads that are laboring and grandparents that are raising children by themselves that need somebody to come alongside of them and minister to them. And we can go happily along our way and miss it. God, open our eyes. To see those who are insignificant, see those who can do nothing for me and minister to them. When we do this to the least of these, we have done it unto him. We've received him, we've received the Father. Now, I will applaud the fact that we have made leaps and bounds of improvement over the last 2,000 years in our care for children as long as they're already born. And prior to that, we are woefully 
as a nation and a society still murdering unborn babies. Thousands and thousands and thousands. And what a responsibility we have to come alongside those mothers and those families to impact them with the gospel. Jesus is calling them to go to the ones that nobody wanted to go to. Uh, Be willing to humble themselves and reach down. So then not only does he use the illustration of children, but then he says, now let's talk about the outsiders. Now this is an opportune illustration because it's not necessarily in the course. John interrupts him. And John says, well, you know, I'm thinking about what you're saying and about being a servant and all this. And he said, we saw some guys casting out demons in your name and we told them to cut it out because they didn't go to our church. And Jesus says, don't forbid them from doing that. Nobody can do these miracles in my name and then turn around and say something evil about me quickly. He said, if they're not against us, they're for us. They're doing the work of ministry, and John is forbidding them for doing this. You see, the test of godly ministry is not fellowship with us. The test of godly ministry is fellowship with him. Are they with him? Are they pursuing him? One commentary said, he said, contrary to the disposition of many modern Christians who often have rigid doctrinal requirements and expectation, Jesus appears remarkably ecumenical and accepting. Now, by no means are we accusing Jesus of denying the tenets of the faith. I hope you get that. Jesus is not denying himself. But he's acknowledging that when something is done in his name, that we ought to rejoice in that, not be envious of it. And how easy it is for that spirit of self-promotion to well up inside of us and think, man, another church is doing better than mine? Dadgummit, can't believe it. You know, the, the analogy or the little joke that went on, the pastor on a Monday morning, he's talking to a group of guys and he said, how's it going? He goes, ah, it's terrible. He said, you know, attendance is down, the offerings are down, the deacons are mad at me, but praise God, no other church is doing any better. And as long as we're not as bad as the next guy, we're okay. It's almost as if John has come in and said, hey, look, okay, I get that we can't be claimed who's better in this group, but at least tell us we're better than that group. And Jesus says, no, don't forbid them. Rejoice in what's going on. God made each group for his glory and he's going to do his work. The idea here is that let God be the master of his servants and we take responsibility for the work we've been given to do. It's kind of like what your children, would, what you would say to your children about cleaning their room. Don't you worry about your sister, you clean your own room. I'm not sure what's going on. Can we just pray? I'm not sure what's happening, but obviously there's an emergency. So bow your heads with me and we'll pray together. Father, I don't know what's just happened here, Lord, but you do. And Lord, we ask you, Father, that you be with the Hardys right now, that, Father, you would, uh, or whatever the need is, that, Father, you would meet it. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would give comfort to them as they leave. Uh, Lord, I pray, God, that you would guide the situation for your glory. And uh, we'll praise you for it. And just uh, trust you, Lord, in the midst of all of this. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Please keep them in prayer, and we'll uh, try to let you know what's going on if we can find out. So then... As we think of those on the outside casting out demons in his name, he tried to stop them. I think often we can look across town and be very intimidated. I remember as a pastor in Chillicothe, and this this illustration really hit me like a ton of bricks because 
I was wrestling with God, why do you have me here? What are you doing with us? I mean, we're, we're struggling to, 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 to labor here in this place, and yet there are other churches around me that, and I, when I moved to Chillicothe, I thought I was going to come in and show everybody how to do it, you know. We're going to get this thing straightened out and uh, set everybody straight. And it wasn't six months in, I found out I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember just being so grieved in my soul, and I was a few years into pastoring there, and and I had met a couple of pastors who weren't Baptist, and they loved Jesus, and that really baffled me. Um, I was just really confused. I couldn't believe that people who weren't Baptist loved Jesus. And um, I'm still not completely convinced. I'm, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, no. And I, I remember pulling into the parking lot on a Saturday morning, and uh, I was thinking, Lord, you know, here... Aaron's church is doing so well, and God's, you're using him in a great way. And I'm thinking of Sean's church, and God's blessing them, and Sean pastored a mile and a half from me. And Ryan's church is doing good, and, and I'm thinking, why am I even here? Why don't you just take this group of people, and we'll give them the building, and I'll go somewhere else and work where I'm needed. And what was going on in my heart, there was a fear of insignificance. And I was reminded then in that moment of the story of Nehemiah, where God had given the instructions, Nehemiah had given instructions for everybody to build on a corner of the wall. And it's as if the Lord convicted my soul. He said, I've given you a corner of the wall to build on. Now build here and let me care for the rest of you. And I can't tell you the freedom of ministry after that point, of just being able to go to work and build on the corner of the wall that God put me in. And there's great freedom of understanding that I don't have to worry about everybody else and what they're doing. We're just called to be faithful where God put us. And Jesus is pointing out that we don't have to, that the, the measure of ministry here, of ministering to the least, is not about who's doing the best, but being faithful where God planted us. So then we see next not only the last illustration, the outsider, but then I want you to see the cup of water. Cup of water. How often have I struggled in my spirit with a genuine desire to do something more? We even talk about things like doing something great for God. And yet when Jesus describes ministry, he describes it as a cup of water. Just a simple cup of water. You know, there's little room for boasting in a cup of water. It's not like you're going to share the cup of water with somebody and they're going to go, hey, can I get your recipe? You know, man, what's your method of handing out water? You don't get to write many books about that. It, it, you know, you're not going to go to the Christian bookstore and say, cup of water ministry. Hand it out. That's all there is to it. There's no boasting in this. There's no strategy in it. It is something very simple that we can't boast in. And here's the statement he's trying to say. Are we willing to minister to the insignificant? And are we willing to do the seemingly insignificant? Are we willing to do what is insignificant? I think too often, even when we're ministering to insignificant or those that are less off, and we, we do this, we don't do it in a way that could be seen as insignificant, but we do it in a way that is grand. Watch what we're doing. Did you see our Facebook post? It's amazing. 
our church is awesome. And we, we launch into a self-promotion of looking what we're doing. And Jesus said, if you're going to serve, do so where your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And he said, just a cup of water in my name. And here's the wonderful blessing. Here's the thing. I would love to lead a citywide revival and see thousands of people come to know Christ. But the problem is, is that most of the time when we do these things, it becomes about men. And Jesus says, are you willing just to give out a cup of water in my name and for my glory? And so the cup of water Though we would all love to be a part of a citywide revival and see great things happen as we would put the thing around it, are we willing to give a cup of water to someone who can do nothing for us? Well, let's put it a little closer to home. Are we willing to work in the first through, grade, first through third grade class? I'll say it again so I don't get any amens. Are we willing to work through the first through third grade class? Yeah. Are we willing to labor in a nursing home where the smell is awkward? And we might even actually have to risk our own health. And by the way, make no mistake, church, we cannot live with fear and not do ministry. We must be willing to step into dangerous places to do ministry at times. Are we willing to work the nursery or to show up for a work day? Are we willing to do what is the insignificant that no one sees? You see, Christ-like servanthood is not measured by who we serve. And it's not measured by who we serve with. And it's not measured by what we're doing. But what is the measurement? And this is the final motive. Here's the motive. In my name. And he says it four times in the text. In my name. This is the motive of all gospel ministry. It's not a ministry of what I can do. This grand thing over here. Now we've really accomplished ministry. Now we're in the big time of ministry. Because look at all we're accomplishing. Jesus says here's the thing. If you're doing all that in your name you have your reward. But someone who hands out a cup of cold water in my name, they'll not lose their reward. See, the key here, that the whole hinge pin is are we doing what we do for the glory of God? Christ-like service is measured by that one thing in his name. We do this that Jesus would be thought well of, not us. We do this that Jesus would be seen as the benefactor, not us. That he would be in the authority and he would be the one that was receiving glory, not us. See, in my name means that I'm doing it on his behalf, in his authority, and for his glory. And that means I can lay down my fear of insignificance, understanding that his name will always be significant. And that though we fail at maybe even accomplishing something great, and the, the reality of it is, is by the time my grandkids are off this earth, probably nobody will remember I even lived. But my prayer is, that the name of Jesus will still be exalted. And that somewhere, though they not even know how it came to them, because here's the reality, you don't know who brought the gospel to you four generations back. But somewhere, four generations, five generations ago, somebody sat in a Sunday school room and taught somebody who taught somebody who taught somebody who taught somebody, and now you're sitting here with the gospel today. And you know the gospel because somebody impacted you. And man, that is the role of ministry is that we can do that work and God's name is magnified in the midst of it. You see, all of human history has been about selfish ambition, about building my name and building my tribe's name. But ministry is simply anything I do that exalts the name of Christ alone. 
through the Tower of Babel, they said, we're going to build a name to ourselves. We're going to make sure we're not insignificant. And God may choose to exalt the name of men. And we can be thankful for that. We can be thankful for the icons of history that we see. A great book by Warren Wiersbe at 50 Christians Everyone Should Know. And there's great instruction in that book. But yet the, 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 the reminder in that is every time I read those, these are not men who pursued greatness. but They pursued Christ. And Christ exalted their name. And we can be thankful for Let God be the one that covers or guards our significance. And let's magnify his name. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, often we can be in the work of ministry and feel the insignificance of what we're doing in time. But we can't measure eternity. And Father, we ask you to help us to trust you. Trust your word. Trust that we can obey your word, and Lord, if we give a cup of cold water in your name, we'll not lose our reward.